0: Welcome to The Rock Church, a vibrant, enthusiastic, edgy church meeting in West Bridgford, Nottingham. You can find out more about us by visiting the rock.org.uk. We hope you were blessed by this message.
1: Right, Kate, you better get up. I'm going to pray for you. She's gorgeous. Um now I feel like I need to do something now, Lynn, because <laughs> Lynn told us the other day that who was was it Erin? Erin didn't realise that we were married. Oh, good. So I immediately thought, right, I need to increase my public affection from Hey? Oh, well I'll do it anyway just an excuse just an excuse for a quick um why it was it was quite funny because I normally walk home Kate can't stand walking and I like to walk so I walk home and sometimes I'll walk home with the Normans and so they'll see Kate going home. It makes sense Kate going home and we've no- so just a little bit more kissing cuddling father we thank you thank you for this woman thank you Uh, for the gift you've put in it. But more than that, Lord, we thank you for your word that we're about to receive. Thank you for the Holy Scriptures. Thank you for the breath of God that still breathes over us every day, and it will forever, and our knowledge will increase, uh, probably even through eternity. We'll never stop learning. So we take a moment to absorb another learning opportunity right now so that we can go away from this place. Better, bigger people to represent you. The best we can in jesus name give her a hand let her loose let's go Amen. Um,
0: is a chair of trustees here oh he is anyone ever noticed every time andrew gets up to preach he always does this first i just think it's really cool so i'm going to do it as well I'm just gonna have a glass of water Lovely. all right doing things a bit differently today going to preach very differently to the way that i normally preach so there's going to be no perfume there's no smelly socks there's no fresh bread Okay, I know, it's going to be quite boring this morning. (laughs) I'm just going to start with the Word of God. Philippians 4, 4 4-7 says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near, and do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace, and then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Can't tell you how many times I've quoted some of those verses to some of the people in this church, just so flippantly. Oh, you just need to go and read Philippians 4 and expect them just to do what it says. And then, of course, something happens in your own life. And you have to practice what you preach. And just like I said, the last time I got up here, I've had some stuff to go through the last week that I've been preparing this word. So trust me, what I'm about to preach is just as much as it is for me as it is for you, okay? And I want to speak to you, the title of my message this morning is The Pattern for Peace. The Pattern for Peace. But before I do that, I need to teach you, before I come to the pattern, I need to teach you what peace actually is. The original Greek word used here for peace, where's Irene? Are you ready for this? Do you know what the original Greek word for peace is? No, it's, it's Irene. Or I, 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 Irene. It's got an accent on Irene. It, it means wholeness, completeness, quietness and rest. It's a given over. It's blissfully relaxing. It's tranquility in our soul that is unaffected by the outward circumstances or the pressures that we're going through. It's inner stability. When our circumstances are in the natural, nerve-wracking and stomach churning and traumatic and upsetting, that is the peace of God. And what about that surpasses all understanding? What does that mean? Well, the Greek here says hooper echo. Am I saying that right, Miss Theologian of Missio Day? Hooper echo, which come from the words hooper meaning over and echo meaning have or hold So basically, surpassing all understand means to be above, or to rise above, or to be superior. It's something way above the norm, vastly beyond the regular. It is a peace that defies any human logic or explanation that we can give. So from a translation perspective, this peace is essentially implying a deep, blissful, restful state that is so far beyond the normal state and something that we could scarcely even begin to imagine, it's a peace that is not based upon the things that we're going through, or on our own thinking and understanding. It's based on the promises of God to us. It's His peace in the midst of any and anything that we are going through. Anybody want a bit of that this morning? But we need to read the passage fully to really get this often quoted verse, because just before the last verse on the peace that surpasses all understanding, the, the Apostle Paul wrote. Wrote it and he encourages us to do something that might seem a little bit out of context and a bit odd in the light of our circumstances. Because he says, Rejoice. Rejoice all the time. Rejoice continually on every occasion, whether it's good or bad. And he says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. And he says, You don't need to be anxious about anything, but you need to pray and you need to thank God even though your circumstances might be horrific. So they're the real keys here. The supernatural peace of God comes as a result of our actions. Rejoicing, being gentle, not worrying, praying about everything, and being grateful even when life is an absolute stinker and is throwing absolutely everything it can against you. So we're just going to break these little verses down this morning and dig a bit deeper. So rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Now that term rejoice, it was... Commonly used among early Christians. It was almost a call to joy. This is what it was like a salutation. Jesus wouldn't walk in and say, Hey, Up Me Duck, hi. He'd say, Rejoice. Joy. Rejoice. That's how he would welcome people. That's what he would say to people. And Paul, in this little book, Philippians, he used this term joy 16 times in 104 voices. This is the most joyful book in the Bible. And yet Paul was the most unlikely candidate for rejoicing. Because if you think your life was tough, just listen to this. He was going about and spreading the gospel, and people were doing all sorts of crazy things to try and stop him. He was beaten up. He was beaten with rods three times. Well, that's got to hurt. Five times, it says he suffered 40 lashes. We know that Jesus had the lashes. He had that way more many times than Jesus, which had the potential to kill him. He was stoned and left for dead. He was shipwrecked three times. He was adrift out at sea all day and night. And when he was in the country, he was hounded by bandits. He worked endlessly, tirelessly, and sometimes had no sleep. He experienced extreme hunger. He was thirsty, he was cold, he was naked. And the list goes on and on. And yet in all that, he knew what Jesus had done for him. In all of that, he wanted to be like Jesus. He was so blessed that God had chosen him to be the one to tell others the good news, even despite his circumstances. He was a joyful Christian, and he shouldn't have been. And most of us aren't when things like that happen to us, but we should be, because that's what the Bible says. And most of us, at some point in our life, we've experienced some really tough times. It's just all kind of part of the rich tapestry of life. But in those times, we have to make a decision. We can choose to be joyful or joyless. We can choose to be delighted or downcast. We can choose to be merry or morose. It's up to us. And when we choose joy and check it out, it is one of our values that we really believe in here at The Rock. It's a core value that we push throughout our dream dream teams. When we push it, when we're joyful despite our circumstances, we find not only are we, we ourselves get blessed, but it blesses all the people around us. I mean, nobody likes it, do they, when somebody walks in with a face like a wet weekend? You don't want to go anywhere near them. We should be full of the joy of the Lord. Yeah, but Kate, how can we rejoice when it's all going wrong? How do I rejoice when my partner's just walked out on me? When I've lost someone that I love? When I've lost a limb? When I've been given a a terminal diagnosis? When I've lost my job? How do I rejoice when my child, my grown-up child, won't talk to me anymore and won't let me see my grandchildren? What about I'm being bullied at work? How, how do I rejoice in that situation? Okay, Paul does not know what he's on about. Paul doesn't have to live in this world. Well, no, but thank the Lord that we didn't have to live in his. Because that's the thing, Paul totally gets it. Because he didn't pen these words from some plus office with a city view and his double screen computer and chat GPT, he was in prison when he wrote this stuff to us he'd worked out that joy isn't dependent on our circumstances but on whether or not we're in the Lord and Ali's one of his favorite sayings is happiness comes from happenings but joy comes from Jesus Paul's not asking us to rejoice in our circumstances or in our tragedy he wants us to rejoice it doesn't He doesn't want us to rejoice when someone has died. He doesn't want us to rejoice because we've lost our job. He says, rejoice in the Lord. You don't rejoice in your circumstances. Some of our circumstances suck. But he says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the God who never changes. Rejoice in the God who forgives, who always takes us home, who never turns his back on us, never gives up on us. Because the closer we live to the Lord, the more able we'll be able to rejoice in him. Joy is a choice just like forgiveness. But it's a choice with massive benefits that bring us closer to God's heart and all the promises that he has for us. And they're all good. Everything from God is good. Whenever something bad happens, we know that he always works all things together for our good. And we know that something even better is on its way. Does that mean it's not going to be hard or sad? Of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. But he's the one who has the power to help us and comfort us, and bring us hope, which is something we definitely can't live without. So we rejoice always. And then it says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Let me talk to you about gentleness for a minute. His name's Bill. He's got wild hair, wears a t-shirt with holes in it, ripped jeans and no shoes. This was literally his wardrobe for his entire four years of uni. He's brilliant, super bright, and he's just become a Christian whilst he's been studying. Across the street from his campus is a well-dressed conservative church. They want to develop a ministry to the students, but they're really not sure how to go about it. And one day, Bill decides he's going to go to that church. He walks in with his no-shoes, his ripped jeans, and his holy T-shirt and wild hair. And the service has already started, but Bill starts down the aisle looking for a seat. The church is completely packed. There are no seats left. And by now, people are starting to look a bit uncomfortable, but no one says anything. Bill gets closer and closer to the pulpit, and when he realises there are no seats at the floor, he just squats down and sits on the carpet right at the front. Although perfectly acceptable behaviour maybe in a college lecture, trust me, in this church, this has never happened before. And by now, the people are really uptight, and the tension is thick in the air. About this time, the minister realises that from way at the back of the church, a deacon is slowly making his way towards Bill. Now, the deacon is in his 80s, with silver-grey hair, a three-piece suit and a pocket watch. He's a godly man, very elegant, very dignified, and he walks with a cane. And as he starts walking down towards this boy, everyone is saying to themselves, you can't blame him for what he's about to do. How can you expect a man of his age and of his background to understand some college kid on the floor? It takes a long time for the man to reach the boy, and the church is utterly silent, except for the clicking of the man's cane. All eyes are focused on him. You can't even hear anyone breathing. And the people are thinking, the minister can't even preach the sermon until the deacon does what he needs to do. And now they see this elderly man get to the front, drop his cane on the floor, and with great difficulty, he lowers himself and sits down next to Bill and worships alongside him so he won't be alone. Everyone chokes up with emotion. There isn't a dry eye in the entire congregation. And when the minister finally gains control, he says this, what I'm about to preach, you will never remember. What you have just seen, you will never forget. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, a Christ-like supernatural quality used to show loving kindness. It's gracious, it's patient, it's mild-mannered, it's composed, it's courteous, it's compassionate, it's respectful and considerate, and it's probably one of the most important character traits for those who say they live by the Spirit. It's also about being adaptable to others and to reaching and meeting their needs. That's what the old deacon did in the story. He is the epitome of the world. To be gentle means showing love and care for others in how we act and speak, which is so contrary to the flesh. The flesh says, if you don't like me the way I am, tough. But being adaptable to where others are at is saying to ourselves, how can I make myself different for you? Is there a way that I can be that is gonna help you? Is there anything I could do better for you? How can I serve your needs more effectively? You know, I love my football. And I love going down the ground because it's probably the only place where I can get to justifiably shout really loud and get some tension out from the week. And because I am quite boisterous and um, tomboyish at football, I always used to think that I wasn't gentle. But when I read that list, I think, I'm all right. We're doing okay, guys. And I think knowing that we are doing the things on that list, that brings me a peace. Because I know I'm acting the way I should. And when we're in the will of God, you will always feel the peace of God. And then Paul writes, be anxious for nothing. Anxiety is defined as a state of uneasiness, apprehension, worry, intense fear, or dread that sometimes even lacks a specific cause. Anxiety is having thoughts of, and being anxious before something's even happened. And basically God's saying, don't do it. Don't worry. Take your thoughts captive, especially the stuff that hasn't even happened yet. That's called future fear. We work ourselves up mentally and emotionally about something that might not even ever happen to us. Mark Twain said, I'm an old man and I've had many troubles, most of which I've never even seen happen. Future worry is overwhelming and there's a really good reason for that. It's because we only have grace for today, not for tomorrow. One of Satan's simplest tricks and the most effective strategies is to draw our attention to the things that we can't do anything about and there's nothing worse than a crisis that we can't fix. And if our hours are spent with thoughts of tomorrow's issues that we can't access today, and we know we can't touch with today's resources and grace, then we are utterly doomed to worry. And worry wears us out. Charles Spurgeon once said, "'Anxiety doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrows, "'it empties today of its strength.'" Have you ever made yourself miserable and ruined today Because you're so busy rehearsing some kind of conversation with someone in your mind that you think is going to happen or think is going to take place. I can't tell you how many times I have literally worn myself out by rehearsing potential conversations with friends or maybe with one of you or maybe in the past with one of my bosses that I've worked for. And I would go over and over in my mind these conversations, planning out the way it was going to pan out. And then when we had the conversation, it was just so completely different to what I thought it was gonna be. And I basically wasted time and energy, and in the process, of course, lost any peace that I once had, for no reason whatsoever. No reason whatsoever. And the stats show that 90%, 90% of the things that we worry about don't even ever happen. 90%. What a waste of worry, what a waste of head space. And worries like a merry-go-round Your mind is just like, a bit like the spin cycle on a washing machine. We're called to hold our thoughts. We're called to take our thoughts captive. Because if we don't, they're just going to go round and round and round. And a spin cycle's great because it spins the water out. But when it finishes, it's still in the same place. And in our heads, if we just keep going round and round and round and round, the same thing, nothing changes. There's a lot of motion, but we end up right where we started, and probably worse off because now we're sick and we're dizzy. So this verse is commanding us not to do it. It doesn't say don't care about anything. It's saying don't meditate on the mess. It's saying we shouldn't get to the point where we're paralyzed and distracted from life because we're so wrapped up in our circumstances that we can't see the wood for the trees. Because when we're in that place, we're very rarely close to God. We don't know him in those times. And the verse is saying, just stop. Stop with the excessive anxiety and worry. Stop seeing your circumstances as impossible and start trusting God. So let me just put this together. If you are excessively concerned, if worry is keeping you up at night and keeping you from your responsibilities during the day, and it's just driving you crazy, just recognize it and try and change your thinking. Because the more we stare at our problems, the bigger they get. And we need to get to the next part of the pattern that says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, pray. If you wanna follow this pattern towards peace, we need to be praying. Take the time you spend in fretting and pray. Get God involved in it. There's no matter, big or small, all of your issues are important to him. If they're important to you, they're important to him. So give it to him. Prayer should always be our first response. And once we're praying about it, we can rest assured that God is working on it. So we give it to God and we go to sleep. Get some sleep, guys. Because those of us who will leave everything in God's hands will eventually see God's hand in everything. You may not know why you're having to endure some of these circumstances. And you might be asking God, why are you taking me into these troubled waters? And God's response would be, I'm taking you through the troubled waters because your enemies can't swim. Sometimes you just have to go through some stuff. I've got another point yet, Josh, but, but feel free. <laughs> I love having music behind me. You can tinkle as long as you like. Go on, Josh. <laughs> Our prayers might be awkward and our attempts might be feeble, but since the power of prayer is in the one who hears it and not in us who are saying it, that means our prayers are making a difference. I want to tell you about a modern parable on prayer. A large ship was wrecked during a storm and only two men survived and they swam to a desert island. The two survivors looked around them and realized they had no recourse except to pray to God. To find out whose prayer was more powerful, they agreed to divide the territory between them and stay on opposite sides of the island. The first thing they prayed for was food. The next morning, the first man saw a fruit-bearing tree on his side of the island, and he was able to eat the fruit. The other man's piece of the land was barren. After a week, the first man got a bit lonely, so he decided to pray for a wife. The next day, another ship was wrecked, and the only survivor was a woman who swam to his side on the island. On the other side of the island, There was nothing. Soon, the first man prayed for a house, clothes and some more food, and the next day, by some miracle, all these things were provided for him and the woman, but the second man received nothing. Finally, the first man prayed for a ship so that he and his wife could leave the island and return to civilization, and in the morning, a ship was anchored off his side of the island and the crew were waving at him. The first man and his wife boarded the ship and decided to leave the second man on the island. They considered him unworthy to receive God's blessings because none of his prayers had been answered. As the ship began to leave, a voice boomed from heaven and said, why are you leaving your companion on the island? Well, these blessings are mine alone, says the first man. I was the one who prayed for them. His prayers weren't answered, but mine were, so he doesn't deserve anything. You are completely mistaken, says God. He only had one prayer, and I answered it. And if it hadn't been for his prayer, you wouldn't have received any of the things you did because he prayed that all your prayers would be answered. We need to pray. Church, we need to pray. Because when we don't, we have less and less desire of God and we feel far from him. And then we allow stress and anxiety and confusion to come in and rule our lives. There's no joy. And then other things start to take his place. And that's when we experience an emptiness in our hearts and we make wrong decisions and we become easily deceived and defeated. And if you're feeling any of those things, you need to pray more. I need to pray more. The church needs to pray more. And when we pray, it makes it easier for us to hear him. When we pray, he hears and he acts and we get our answers. John Wesley once said, God does nothing except in answer to prayer. In other words, if you don't ask, you don't care. So you want peace? Pray. Pray. The key to overcoming worry is to pray about everything and to worry about nothing and to pray with your eyes on God and not on your circumstances. And the verse goes on, the fifth pattern for peace is to give thanks in all circumstances. We're there, Josh. We're on number five. Have an attitude of gratitude. Now, when is it easiest to be thankful? When things are going right, right? Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? But maybe not. Because that's not what these verses are challenging us on. We're called to give thanks even in the midst, even in the middle of the trial. And why do we do it? Because we're told to. It's just an obedience thing. It's God's will. And how do we receive anything good from God? By being in His will. Does that mean we always have to smile? No. Does that mean we always have to be full of joy? Yeah. Sometimes things in life are bad and we have seasons of mourning and being upset. That is life. But it's in these moments that God asks us to thank him anyway. Keep thanking him. Defining characteristic of being a Christian is how we respond in our trials. And sometimes God will put you around the same trial over and over again until you get it. Ah, oh, I need to thank him in the trial. We're not thanking him for the trial. We're just thanking him in it. I'm pretty positive we've probably all our days when thankfulness does not come easy. And I bet... Most of us right now could rattle off a whole list of things that would cause us to struggle to be able to say thank you. So let's take our cue from the author of these verses, the man who had every right to be bitter, but wasn't. That guy again, Paul, the same one that was whipped and shipwrecked. He was languishing in prison, separated from his friends, unjustly accu- accused and brutally treated. If ever had a person had a, person, had a right to complain, it was Paul. But instead of complaining, we find him praising and thanking God. From one end of the Bible to the other, we are commanded to be thankful. It's like a a natural outflowing of a heart that's totally in sync with God. And so we come to that verse on peace again that we started with that reads, and having done all that, having done all what? Having rejoiced, having been gentle, having not worried, having prayed, and having given thanks, then... The peace of God comes to guard our hearts and our minds Isaiah 23:6 says perfect absolute peace surrounds those whose imaginations are consumed with you they confidently trust in you I think it must really sadden God's heart when we just wander through life looking for peace in all the wrong places looking for peace in maybe other people or positions or possessions or promotions because all these things are temporary I love going on holiday. I love the sea. I get so much comfort from just looking at an ocean. It brings me so much peace. I literally, I'm, I'm just drinking it in, not the salt water. I'm just like, God, this view's amazing. And I can, I can just feel everything within me just draining away. I'm just like, I'm at one with God. But it's temporary, because you can't stay on holiday your whole life. And if I look around, hello, we're probably the most landlocked part of the country we could be from the sea. So my peace in those moments is temporary. God's isn't. We have to come back to life. <laughs> back to life, back to reality. We have to come back to reality. I can't rely on the sea to give me peace. And so it's important that we do all the things preceding this little verse to get it. But listen, the title of my message is slightly tongue-in-cheek, okay? Okay. I've given you a formula from the word, a pattern, which will give you peace. But our relationship with God can never be in looking for clues or in a pattern or a formula because all these things move us away from relationship. We've already heard that this morning a few times. They move us from relationship to rigidity in just a pattern. And worse than that, religiosity. Got it out. The word of God is about knowing him and trusting him. So when we turn to formulas and we just rely on some kind of series of steps, when we take those steps and things don't quite go according to plan, what are we going to do? We're going to blame God and we're going to say the Bible doesn't work. This word isn't true. What we need to do to find peace is to look for the Prince of Peace. Because hidden in our three little verses this morning and all these things we need to fight to do to find peace, we read this. The Lord is near. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And those four words should change everything. The Lord is near. He's always near. I'm not convinced finding peace is just about how much we rejoice or how gentle we are or not worrying and and praying and giving thanks. It's about relationship. It's about believing that God is near to us and that he comes close to us in the midst of the stuff that we're going through. It's knowing that God is an ever-present help in times of trouble, that he's near to all. It's knowing that his word says he will never leave us or forsake us. Knowing that he works all things together for the good of those who love him. Knowing that he provides all our needs. It's about knowing God. That's how the peace comes. Because without him, there is no peace. Because if there's no God, there's no peace. But if we know God, if we know God, we can know peace and none of us want to be alone when times are tough we want the presence of another person in our trials with us we want to know that they're listening to us that they're loving us that they're encouraging us that they're backing us because it reduces our fears how much more should we want God when we're struggling with some stuff we don't want a set of steps or a pattern or a formula to help us we want him we want the one who can help us and having him is the only way to experience what we heard at the beginning, the peace that surpasses all understanding. The story goes of a little lad who was thrown overboard during a storm and he gets washed up on some rocks and he sits on them all night until he's rescued. And then the guy who's interviewing him says, did you shake with fear when you were sat on the rock? And the little lad says, yeah, I trembled all night, but the rock didn't. Jesus is the rock. He's immovable, he is totally capable, and he wills us to allow him to take our troubles and our worries and anxieties off us and onto him. Gaining peace is all about God's presence in our lives. He gives us what we need, exactly what we, when we need it. He doesn't give it to us the day before, the day after. He, his timing is perfect. It never makes sense, but it's perfect. He's never late. And even if the trials are, tr- the trials are tough, it doesn't mean he's not in them. He's there. It doesn't mean he's left us. It doesn't mean he won't provide for us. It's about finding him in the middle of all of it and trusting that what he says is going to come to pass. So we have a pattern, a pathway for peace. We have some steps to take to achieve peace. But if we just do the steps without involving the stepmaker, nothing will change. We use the pattern, but we do it with God, knowing he's near, expecting the Prince of Peace to turn up, and become our peace in ways that we could never fathom, never think dream or imagine a quality of peace unlike anything the world can offer. So I say it again guys, rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near and don't be anxious about anything but in everything with prayer and petition and with thanksgiving present your requests to God and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you.